0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, long-time uh, friend of the firm, frequent co-investor, uh, Steve Jang of Kindred. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Steve, you are a long-time uh, entrepreneur and, and investor. Uh, when, when you look back at the arc of your career, what do you think is the, the thread that ties your various different experiences together? Because you've been in different sectors, different experiences. How do you sort of make sense of what's the thread you've kept, uh, kept pulling or what has drawn your, your interest
1: Uh, Good question. I I think I've always, um, you know, even from the very beginning, uh, uh, during school, and then um, in every stage of life after that, the thing that's always been the most fun is the creativity of entrepreneurship. Um, For me, the, the idea of figuring out a problem to solve that was very personal or painful. Um, or just a, a, a key insight um, into something uh, in, inside of society or in the economy, and then being uh, really creative about it uh, in the way that oftentimes uh, we don't look at it as creativity in business, but I really think it is. I think creative entrepreneurs find really interesting, sometimes you know, left field, oblique solutions to things, and, and the, the kernel of what's exciting to. Designers and engineers and product managers to come join that mission is because of uh, often the creativity of the founder in solving that problem, not just because the problem is big and fantastic, which it has to be, but the um, the creativity by which you're going to solve that is, is so important, and that's that's true of startups in the late '90s, um, that's true of startups in the 2000s and and today.
0: Yeah, and yeah. In speaking to a lot of the founders over the years who you've worked with, one of the things I'll say is that you're you've been their favorite advisor, their favorite investor. What do you think it is that sort of uh, about you? And don't be modest. That sort of like, what do you understand about company building or about uh, you know being a sort of consigliere for or, or, or counselor for the founder that they they really appreciate that others can learn from?
1: Well, so I didn't start out my career as as a as a founder. Uh, I I came out as a uh, designer, front-end developer, then working in product for a while. Um, And so I got to see the inner workings of um, how challenging and exciting uh, starting a company is and and looking up two founders that I worked for at the time. Uh, When you're in that position, you really are getting the uh, unpolished view and, you you know, the good, bad, and the ugly. And it's really hard, but it's really worth it, too, when you succeed uh, because you're not only creating... Um, an amazing opportunity for yourselves and your team, but you're also creating great change, hopefully that's positive in the world. And that's, I mean, that goes beyond, uh, financial return. And so that, that struggle to do that, uh, is, is pretty consistent across all startups and companies that are new. And, you know, the, a lot of people will come in and say, well, startups are so glamorous and so exciting. And, you know, we, they, they only really see the success stories, which is a shame, I think it's important to see everything, and the um, the 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 probably the 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 things that I've learned over the years that um, help me work with founders. And I'm I'm always improving. I'm always learning about mistakes I'm making um, in in helping a founder. And the the, the if I were to list uh, the three things, it would be one uh, that by working in startups uh, and also uh, starting several companies, I've I've helped uh, create three companies in the past. Empathy is the most important thing, I think, at the highest level um, when uh, trying to support uh, and help founders on their mission. The empathy comes from not only you know, understanding through learning and listening uh, what their challenges are, and every, every founder and every startup is, is quite different, whether it's enterprise, consumer, marketplaces, or uh, uh, deep tech, but uh, it's also coming from the idea that you've had some experience uh, in the trenches with them. Uh, And then that can come in the form of being a founder or uh, working in an operating company before. And so I I do think that that helps me uh, understand all the ups and downs in the roller coaster ride that is uh, starting a company that has a limited timeline to accomplish a really, really big goal with, you know, a fair amount of capital. But uh, it's really a deadline. Um, And uh, as much as uh, people don't want to think it is. It's certainly a race, and um, and that's a challenge. The other thing that helps me in working with founders uh, has been get into the details. Getting into the details is a good thing. Um, oftentimes, uh, uh, founders want to, um, you know, entrepreneurs want to really show to investors and advisors and even their own team that they really got everything under under control, and that's. I will tell you as a former founder, that is not the case. We're doing the best we can with available information that we have in the small team and set of resources we um, uh, we've been uh, we've been lucky enough to get. Getting into the details as an investor or as an advisor um, is the best way that you can actually learn about what they actually need help with and to be able to pitch in. And so I think getting into the details or the weeds, as they say, is super important and that helps uh, across the board. I think another thing that is is really helpful too is to not treat each founder the same way. Each company, each product, each team is very different from each other. Um, And um, rather than sort of um, just creating sort of broad, um, overly simplified rules of how to invest or how to um, uh, help founders is kind of BS, right? It's, everyone's very different. And so helping can mean really diving in deep and, and doing product whiteboarding and um, really being a good sounding board um, uh, constantly. And some people uh, don't need that cadence and that depth of uh, detail work. And really what they're looking for is checkpoints to be able to talk about some of their insecurities or their concerns. Um, and, and that feels much more like just a, a, a conversation one-on-one. Uh, intermittently, so I think um, those are the ways I think about um, helping and uh, uh, founders, and that really comes from uh, my experience as being a founder that wanted that type of help.
0: Yeah, you know, you've been doing this, you know, two decades plus. Talk about how the the process of company formation and, and founding companies has changed. Obviously, uh, you know, we have way better technology uh, right now with, with no code and, and other and AWS, of course, that enable company creation to be easier. You guys do a lot of incubation at Kindred. Talk a little bit about how that sort of affected, uh, you know, how you advise or, and how you think about company creation. Well, you know, there's, there's
1: always been sort of a move towards uh, simplification, which, you know, simplification of the tool set that we have to create products or to create companies. You look, you know, I remember during the uh, late 2000 odds, we, um, we had, uh, a company called iMeme that um, we were, you know, it was one pre-Spotify and pre-SoundCloud was the largest on-demand streaming service um, for digital music. And when we had uh, launched that company, uh, we grew um, from uh, zero to 10 million monthly uniques really, really fast. I think it was like six months. Um, and it was record-breaking speed at the time. But what what happened to us there was that we were, uh, co-locate, we were using a colo service and uh, had our own servers in these data centers. And so it was a constant struggle to um, uh, keep the, the service up and running. This is pre-AWS. I remember the uh, subsequent uh, year to year and a half later, AWS launched. And I remember thinking, wow, if, if this really works, this would have this made our lives so much easier Uh, during even a a good outcome, right? This is a good outcome where your traffic is exploding and uh, uh, thinking about tools like AWS, which I think most entrepreneurs today take for granted is an amazing thing. And so I think that a lot of the technology stack and a lot of the tool set on the, on the, on the end user side, inside of a startup, whether you're an engineer, designer, product manager, marketer, or um, a founder, you, um, a lot of that has been simplified and made much more powerful, right? And so, if you start from that network and data layer, and you go all the way up into applications, um, and, and no code, no code, low code is really the just the next step in that evolution, uh, starting from the bottom of the stack and moving upward over the last twenty years. And how that's changed things is, look, when you start a company today. You know, you think about what are the APIs off the shelf that I can use to ship a product? Uh, You think about what are, you know, what hosts are you going to use? You think about all the different microservices and SaaS tools internally that you might use. And it's, this is a golden age. I mean, we keep saying that the last period was a golden age. And then the current stage, the current phase of time is, again, like a a heightened golden age. So I think that um, the nature of technology and progress has been amazing in that. You know, whether it's modular development or it's um, you know uh, cloud uh, cloud hosted applications, whether it's microservices and all these available off the shelf really um, scalable APIs, we have all of the the toolset that we need to to ship products within months, within weeks even, uh, which was unheard of before. I remember before you'd see startup software startups often spend uh, nine months to eighteen months to ship a beta product. And today I've seen, we've seen startups that, um, you know, have, are able to go from idea to um, an early alpha product within you know, a week or two. So it's, it's really exciting and it's, and it's compacted the timeframes in such a way that um, it's almost, uh, you know, some type of like time acceleration model um, uh, uh, in terms of
0: uh, startup uh, uh, development. One, one thing I want to talk about is Uber a little bit. You are super early at Uber. Uh, maybe the first advisor, one of the first people uh, involved. I'm curious, what is a, an early lesson or insight that you took from, from from that sort of early part of the journey that you think isn't fully understood or, or, or appreciated uh, or there's a misconception about um, that as you took it to, you know, advising companies uh, in the post-Uber experience or just thinking about company, you know, formation and scaling? I think a lot of
1: folks look at Really successful startups today, and assume that the uh, the very beginning was equally polished and equally successful, and you know the in, the intent and and uh, nature of it was always of high quality. And I think you know one way to put it is everything big does not start out big. Everything big started out small. And in startups, I, I would say that there's a, a there's a, a theme called you know. Uh, startups don't start out as as really successful companies. They often start out as a side project. And this idea that a side project can become a, uh, a world-changing company and create a totally new market and solve a vast series of problems uh, for humanity uh, is something that really is the norm and not the exception. So in Uber's case, um, it was really a side project when um, Garrett Camp who was the founder and CEO of stumble upon at the time, you know, he was a Canadian citizen, didn't have a uh, driver's license. And, um, uh, back then in San Francisco, uh, te- you know, you know the story well, which is taxi cabs were really hard to hail and you couldn't even call and rely upon them to show up at the, at the right time and place. Um, and so he envisioned this as a, as a side project. And at the time I had built some iOS and Android apps, uh, and use gps and said hey you want to take a look at this i was an advisor to stumble upon at the time um, helping them with uh, product and it was in between startups myself um, and i remember the idea was you know create a llc let's hire some contractors and let's get a prototype built and this is really the early days in the first iteration of ios and yeah. android and um uh, even back then, uh, the way GPSs worked and, and GPS on our phones, um, it was it was it was pretty wonky still, right? It would be pretty inaccurate um, uh, for a good chunk of the day. And the first drivers were hired, and the first drivers were hired from a, a car service company local in San Francisco, and uh, hired them on an hourly basis to just hold the hold the um, app. And this was the first time that they that any of them had held even an iPhone, and so. Um, That experience was really a series of contractors uh, on the development side, working with um, the first iteration of iOS, hiring drivers. It wasn't sort of the full Uber model. And immediately uh, among beta testers, it was, uh, it was popular. Like people were like stunned to be able to see a car on a map and the car icon show up. And then uh, back then, you know, uh, drivers, uh, because they were coming from these limo and car service companies, they were wearing suits with ties. And, and so it was like a, a visceral experience that was really shocking. Um, and it was an exciting side project. And I remember when an offer went out to the first engineer, first full-time engineer, Conrad, and then, uh, uh, the first GM CEO, uh, which was Ryan Graves. And, uh, they both started about the same time. And they were the first employees of, uh, of Uber. And it was still really seen as a side project. And the, and the, and the seed raise was, um, you know, there were several people who I won't name, but uh, declined, right, and, and passed on it. And, and I think that, uh, um, you know, I, it was not an easy fundraise process. And so it was really this, no one was full-time. It was a side project. And this is how a lot of startups, most startups that are successful um, started out this way. And I think the the origin story of a lot of companies is, uh, and I think this is changing, but the origin story for a lot of companies is that uh, it was very, you know, this is really well thought out, well planned from the beginning. And that's just not true. And Uber is an example of that where it was a side project that no one wanted to work on full time. Yeah. Even, even, um, even uh, Travis at the time was an angel investor. And I remember having a chat with him at, uh, at his house about, do you want to, uh, um, uh, work on Uber full time? And, and he was sort of, um, vacillating between, you know, look, I've got a great angel investment fund and I remember him whiteboarding, uh, all the companies on the whiteboard and they were all great. And, um, it wasn't really until the side project started to gain real steam in San Francisco. Yeah. And, um, uh, and it was right about the time where San Francisco as a city, uh, the, Uh, send a cease and desist. I think that was a sign to everyone that um, uh, everyone ought to start thinking about this, working on this full time
0: and, and and taking it seriously. So, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because in many ways it broke the rules of, you know, the perceived rules people have around, Hey, you know, if, if someone is a founder that has a big equity stake in the company, they should be full time on it. You know, the the founder should be the CEO and people have been dubious of, of this model, you know, some people are pulling it off, of, of course, um, but where, you know, there's a CEO who, who has an idea that they, you know, and then they'll take some big equity chunk and find someone else to, to, to run it. And so it's crazy that Uber is the, the success, the success case in which that worked, you know, tr- tremendously well. I'm, I'm curious how you think about that process at all, or, or, uh, ex- extrapolate it out to other companies, but also just what is Garrett's superpower? Like what, what, what enabled uh, him and of course he's trying to, you know, do that again with, with Expa in in different ways. I think Garrett is a, um,
1: in, in a, in a way, you know, we're talking about how startups often, you know, successful startups and large, large tech companies often started out as a side project. Like there's the original, uh, story about Apple and Hewlett Packard, you know, the garage, right. And, and, and that, that origin myth, which oftentimes is actually real. But that was a function of no one has garages in San Francisco, right? That was a function of Palo Alto, Cupertino, and San Jose, right? It was these suburban startups, right? And they started in these, quote-unquote garages." In San Francisco, I feel like um, they were started in, um, they were started in co-working spaces as side projects, right? And, and that, was, that was true of Uber. and, and Garrett, his particular uh, talent and superpower in being able to start it as a, as a side project and to um, have it become a successful company long-term with the leadership and help of everyone that came after the initial idea was that Garrett's just a really creative problem solver. And I think creative problem solvers can um, really put together a complete picture of uh, what should be built. Not just saying, hey, it's X for, X for Y and, and kind of be done with it with a mock-up, but really think it through and think about what the, uh, the entire product should look like what the business model might be and running the numbers, and so I think that creative problem solving as an entrepreneur is not just being a great designer; it's not just having really you know far out there ideas, but it's really putting you know painting the whole entire picture and getting people excited to work on it. So the more complete that picture is, the more completely you've painted your vision in both uh, technical architecture design operational method, and even the numbers, how you forecast the assumptions and how this should all work, that just creates a lot of positive energy. People want to go work on that. People want to uh, uh, hitch their wagon to that. If If you're a great engineer, you want to work on something substantial and well thought out, and it has to be compelling to you. So Garrett is really good at both the creativity and creating that compelling, complete picture of what his vision is. And so, I don't think it's everyone that can create a side project that becomes a successful company. Rather, the logical reasoning is is that uh, a lot of successful companies come from that side project. And so, I don't want to I don't want to mistakenly say that uh, I know all side projects um, will become successful. But it's more that um, this is more often than not the the original root of um, a lot of these very large uh, cases that um, we hear about in the market.
0: Really? One, um, you you spent a bunch of time in consumer, uh, you know, building consumer companies, investing in consumer companies, and you know, sometimes uh, you you come from the music world. Sometimes I think Steve, you're too cool to be a VC, uh, in that you know you have sort of a, a real sense of taste and aesthetics. How do you sort of think about uh, consumer? What's your sort of framework for evaluating consumer opportunities that you either invest in or decide to decide to build?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we the idea of taste is. I think important in almost everything. If you're making products or creating services for uh, other humans, you have to you have to have good taste. At whatever it is, you know, having good taste is not just an aesthetic um, uh, tool, but it actually comes from you know being able to look at all of the different variables of a situation and just coming up with the most elegant solution. And so, to me, to to define taste is how can you look at an entire picture and really make the best judgment call whether or not to join this company whether or not to build this product feature, whether or not to hire this person or whether or not to invest in this you know seed stage startup right and all of these things are pretty tied i think to how you evaluate uh, the world around you so when you talk about music you know that's definitely an aesthetic, emotional reaction. But I think that we have an aesthetic, emotional reaction, oftentimes to whether or not we believe a founder can take this crazy, awesome vision and actually execute upon it. Do they have what we think are the most important things at Kindred? At least are um, you know the ability to build, whether they're a, a designer, engineer, or product manager. Do they have the ability to hire? A great team, which again, is to the idea of uh, being a compelling uh, presenter of your vision uh, and being thorough about that. And then the final part is pretty mission driven. Did you feel the pain that you're trying to solve before? Tell us about that pain. Is it, is it authentic? Is it genuine? And so taste often is just having a, you know, an emotional reaction to these variables. And a lot of people will say, well, investing should be a cold, calculative, stoic uh, uh, exercise. Sure. We all aspire to do that. But to get excited pre-product, before product exists, before any customers exist, and it's just maybe one or two people and an idea, it has to be emotional. Emotional investing on top of all of the other stoic, calculative uh, factors is what's important at um, early stage. At growth, stage investing, maybe not as important, no. right? You have numbers, you have a team to review, you have an operation, operational system to evaluate. It's probably that's important. But I think when you're angel investing or you're seed investing, mm-hmm. um, the emotion and that taste mm-hmm. is super important.
0: Yeah. And um, you know, one thing I think a lot about is, is trying to have beginner's mind uh, in places where sectors where I have you know preconceived notions about, and and one of them, you know, like you, I, I of course started a music company and had a difficult time, so I've sort of soured on 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 music and haven't gotten excited about anything in the space since. Do you have a similar experience uh, in music, or h- how do you view the category, or, or just the concept of beginner's mind more broadly? Sure. So the um, it's interesting. The beginner's
1: mind is a concept that comes from uh, Buddhism, actually. Uh, uh zen buddhism or chan buddhism uh, whichever language you're using from asia and um you know the the concept is uh really built around the idea that uh approach things with no ego approach things with um uh the ability to learn from scratch um and wipe away thing preconceived notions and so if you take this out of sort of philosophical and religious bounds and you bring that into Startups, which you got to be careful with, right? Not everything applies. Um, the, the The beginner's mind on uh, different areas is that timing is is often the thing that is um, uh, left out of the conversation. Um, I once had um, an interesting back and forth um, with an investor that I really admire, Fred Wilson from Union Square, and uh, he talked about um, uh, you know the the market, the product and the team. And I agree 100% with those three things being the main evaluation pillars of looking at a startup. But the fourth thing that um, I offered was that timing is super important. And now there's certain arguments that people say, well, the right team will create the right timing. But uh, for the most part, there's still things that are required of on the demand side of a startup's product or, or service vision. Uh, there's still things that are required on the technology um, infrastructure or enablement uh, that are are, just make these things possible. And so, um, you know, we invest in um, consumer enterprise uh, B2B uh, marketplaces, um, you know, food innovation, fintech, we're, we're all over the map. We're a generalist. We sort of have ADD about our themes um, by intention uh, and we're very generalist. So we look at a lot of things and, The way we kind of evaluate timing or put timing into the evaluation process is not only is this the right team or is this the right market um, and is this the right product approach, right? Because often there isn't a product yet. Um, It's just a vision, but we look at the timing. Timing is super important. Uber would not have happened without GPS, iOS and Android, and um, really a a need for local transportation um, that was constrained and, and frustrating. Right, so all these things came together really in 2009. Again, GPS satellites, iOS, Android, smartphones, where you could build uh, uh, great applications that um, could access all the all the sensors on the phone, and and then also um, the the right sort of sunlight and water of Having a, a really bad taxi cab system out there in most major cities on the planet, <clears throat> so the 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 timing aspect is super important. And now you talk about digital music, you know, I you know we learned so much uh, about um, how difficult it is to build a digital music service when iMe mean, uh, was bought by um, uh, MySpace. I remember. Uh, talking to um, uh, Daniel from Spotify and uh, we had met briefly and I also um, met and uh, was uh, tried to be helpful to the SoundCloud founders, uh, Eric and Alex. And I, I gave him a, a couple bits of unsolicited advice, which was one, uh, try not to do um, licensing agreements on the terms of what the uh, the music labels and publishers would tell you is the normal set of terms because they don't work. We tried them at um, at Min and they did not work. Even with 100, 100 million monthly uh, uniques, um, it just didn't work uh, mathematically. The the other thing uh, that I left them with was, uh, you might benefit from uh, a better uh, set of t- uh, time factors. People are much more likely to not want to do buy downloads and CDs and much more likely to be social because Uh, social software has become the standard of how people want to interact online. And so timing right now is that Spotify really looks like an amazing product. And I don't think that that product could have been successful as a product or company 10 years ago. And so to your your, uh, question of, uh, are you sort of turned off of any particular space or type of product? I think it's all a matter of timing, right? And so a lot of times people talk about being too early or being too late. And, um, so I want to reintroduce the concept of timing, um, as, uh, one of, you know, one of the four,
0: uh, pillars of, of, um, uh, of, of evaluating a startup. I, I love that. And, and you do a lot in, in crypto and some people think it's too early. Some people think it's, 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 it's just the right time. How do you, when you're evaluating sort of frontier spaces, new spaces, crypto, you know, VR, you know, some other examples, how are you checking as to whether you're, you're too early or, or, or now's the right time. Any, any framework for thinking about that?
1: Yeah, uh, there's, there's a couple of ways that I like to think about it. One is I love going down the rabbit hole with founders. If there's a new space, uh, a new technology area that I'm not as familiar with, I don't look at this. You know, a lot of, a lot of folks will say, hey, this is not in my wheelhouse, so I'm going to opt out. And I think that's actually the most boring thing I can think of as an investor. Um, special over specializing is not uh, you know what I'm interested in not what Connie and I are interested in at uh, kindred we want to go down the rabbit hole uh, what that means is if you meet a founder that's dynamic and visionary and uh, is solving a problem that you agree is important but you're just not as familiar with that means that why don't we go down the rabbit hole with them and follow the founder to their to their market, to their technology area, and try to learn as quickly as possible so that we can get our arms around it, but then also be helpful to them. And that's really exciting. The the other aspect of investing in um, different areas is when you think about a lot of the the, the spaces out there and what it requires to uh, you know do well uh, as a founder. The particular subject matter is super important, but the founder needs to come with that. The founder comes with a deep understanding of the problem or the market opportunity or the technology space. That's not for you to do for them anyway. As an investor, you are there to support them and you're there to knock down obstacles or even give them a way to not have to recreate the wheel on a lot of things. And so where. I think great early stage investors can spend time and I, and I saw this as a founder. And this is what I got from some investors of mine, uh, as a founder and, and not from others was, um, you know, help with the founder stuff, you know, how to hire your, your first five, uh, uh, team members, how to think about the next round of financing, how to map out uh, a product roadmap. That both instills confidence from your team, but gives yourselves the ability to be responsive to new information as you succeed or fail at each step. Um, How to go to market with your product, whether it's a SaaS tool, a marketplace, or uh, even a a root level technology company providing uh, a service or a a product um, uh, to another company that's actually facing the end user. So all of these things are, uh, and we call it the founder stuff, that you can just really roll up your sleeves and help with. And that's super important across any vertical. The, the final thing on this topic that I think is uh, really important, and, and it's something that we are thinking about and, and trying to um, uh, make a little bit more um, uh, programmatic in what we do at Kindred, is the idea that how do you see, you know, a, a technology or an innovation that can affect change, two, three, four degrees up in society, and a lot of what you see in food innovation, for instance, or fintech, is not directly facing the customer. There's a wrapper around it, or it's a, a embedded component of a product that becomes part of the stack inside of another product, right? And and Part of the imagination and is is not just to zoom in really tight and to see the details of it, but sometimes imagination is like zooming back out, right? How do we zoom out to see where does this fit in the big picture of things? And does it create an exciting new version of the world that you want to see? And so that's something we have to do at Kindred because we're investing, you know, so early, but also, you know. In this, in this state of, like, uh, you know, there's known unknowns and unknown unknowns for every startup um, and every founder, we have to be able to zoom out and say, is this company, with their particular product or service or technology, are they creating a world, ultimately, that we want to live in and that we think is exciting? And if you use that, and if you have the imagination to connect the dots all the way through and create a through line to that, almost every company would, uh, can look exciting, right? And so you know, then, you ha- then you're faced with the hard part of, of, of saying no to so many great and talented founders. Um, but uh, we often think about how do we zoom out and imagine the world that um, this founder and this team are trying to create.
0: In sort of the, the first six to 12 months of, of a founder's journey, what's probably the most common mistake or misconception that you, you see them have uh, of course, every company is different. Every, every founder is different, but wh- whether it's, you know, on product or whether it's just financial planning or, 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 or some other element, what, what's sort of something that you, you wish founders in general, you know, better, more appreciated or better understood? That's a hard question because
1: I don't think that there's a, uh, one right answer because again, you know, everyone's different. Totally. Uh, when I was a founder, um, you know, I made different, I made a series of mistakes at each company that were different than the last. So I think the ability to keep making new mistakes, and not old mistakes is probably the best. You know, if you're, to, if you're to take on sort of a, a, um, a negative space view of like what you're trying to do, um, it's not just to build great products and, uh, make customers happy and hire the most talented people you can find. Um, those are all pretty obvious things. I think the less obvious things are the practice of every time you make a mistake um, or fail a product or fail with a team member is to debrief after that and really like understand it. There's an analogy like when you create a product and you and you, uh, you ship a release and the idea that you have some expectations on what you'd like to see um, uh, from that product release, what you expect your, your end users to do or your customers Uh, to like or, you know, how the metrics might be shaped by this release and then doing a postmortem afterwards and saying, so what were our actual results? And when you do that, it really informs your product development process and it helps you improve as a team, as a system. And and it's the same way with, I think, starting and running a company, which is you come in with certain expectations or a belief that you're going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And then- when you can't, you know, oftentimes in the, in the heat of the moment, you just kind of like ignore it or you, 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 um, you move on very quickly and you just try to tackle the next project or the next problem ahead of you. But I think that the thing that was helpful for me, um, you know, I often um, would uh, get so focused in on product development as a, as a, as a early founder that um, I would spend less time on team development. And it felt very zero sum. Um, And then later on, I became more about um, taking risks on the product roadmap. And that was a a new problem that um, I had encountered for myself. And so um, I think I got better at looking at, uh, you know, putting into the process of reviewing performance or outcomes immediately in that moment and trying to codify that in some way into my memory that, Hey, you know, I goofed on this one. Here's why I goofed. Let me go talk to the people I worked with on this and let me get their honest blunt take. And getting that transparency and honesty and and candor from them is super important. And I think that uh, there's a way to do that very quickly and efficiently. But I think baking that into your product development process as a team, baking that into your founder process as a leader of your company is really important. And I think that whether you're a first-time founder or you're a third-time founder or whatever, I think that that's something that um, I think is probably the most universal thing that I would recommend is to, just like you would in product, you would do a review on expectations versus actuals. I, I would say that that's a good thing for a founder to do with even their co-founder. I think that's super helpful and it really is therapeutic or cathartic Especially when it's a failure, and not a success, that you're doing a postmortem on, um, and it really, really um, gives you a, a, a clear, distilled way to track your own progress.
0: We were just talking about crypto, VR. You know, we're talking in you know near the end of July. You know, a few months after COVID. It, it, how how are you thinking about sort of the new normal about investment trends? About you know, your focus right now in terms of spaces or types of companies that that you're looking to invest in right now, Steve. So you-
1: yeah. Um, you know, I would say that some of the more interesting sort of some of the more interesting areas that we've seen in, um, as of late, you know, crypto AR, you know, in, in a larger perspective, media entertainment, uh, technology, I think is, uh, going through, um, a, a renaissance right now. I think VR was largely a disappointment for, um, a lot of people, but AR, um, has a lot of application into uh, media entertainment and I think, uh, functional food, which hasn't classically been an area for venture capital, um, and sort of sat outside of biotech, sat outside of technology, venture capital, um, which was largely software, or hardware driven. That's a really interesting space. And then I think fitness and wellness has had a, you know, a huge, uh, Renaissance boom as well. Um, so that these aren't areas that were uh, classically view, viewed as uh, you know, Silicon Valley venture capital, right? Um, but as of late, just by sort of bottoms up grassroots excitement from those, from the people in those in those areas, um, they've been able to create really exciting new futures in their respective spaces, like functional food has been uh, an industry for almost half a century, uh, but uh, as of late, the plant based aspect and the performance based aspects of functional food has really spurred on a lot of um, scientific and uh, technology startup development but uh, just you know talking about crypto in particular, uh, you know I think the the fundamental idea of community owned uh, community owned services and software. Has always been interesting, but I think that crypto, in a weird uh, oblique way, has become the design and in- infrastructure to be able to uh, execute that community-owned marketplaces or community-owned services. Uh, the idea of removing the middleman or the the m- many middleman parties uh, through technology was true, and a lot of the marketplaces that we've seen have done that, but it's the middleman has been replaced by a more efficient and powerful technology platform, which is great. It creates progress um, in that it, it collects that entire marketplace and brings it all online into one service. But I think the next generation of companies are really looking to see um, how do we create these marketplaces or these services in a way where the community participates in the ownership as much as being um, part of the, the the service providers within it and that's really exciting. Crypto allows you to do that. So in a nutshell, it's um how does, you know, how do we how do we find and build companies that um are essentially using crypto for non-crypto use cases and applying it in the real world. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah. Um so there's a company we invested in called Brain Trust that's doing that for talent marketplaces, just like, you know, TopTal or Um, Any of those talent marketplaces out there for engineering and design services, they're doing that um, uh, with a a token design model where, uh, you know, this is not a crypto for, you know, self-sovereign money uh, or anything like that, but really focused in on um, how do the engineers and designers actually uh, participate in the value created by the marketplace itself. And that's really exciting, and they're doing that with um, uh, crypto economic models and a token system. Uh, Set Protocol is also doing that um, for asset management. Uh, DYDX is doing that for derivatives exchanges, and derivatives, as you know, are many times over much larger in notional value than the spot markets in any type of asset or commodity. Uh, Cross border micro lending is a great uh, area for crypto to be applied. Even what we call a kindred cultural economies, like drops, pre-sales, exchanges, all of these things that we see out there in services like StockX and eBay. Um, You know, this is, this is a community that is global. It's a community that is on a daily basis, creating as much transactional energy as, as the NASDAQ or, or um, uh, many stock exchanges. Um, And uh, how do you apply again uh, crypto technology and design to improve this real world vertical? Um, and so we're seeing a lot of companies like that. There's um, uh, a few uh, in companies we've invested in recently that uh, we'll be able to share publicly, but um, they're addressing a lot of these areas, and that's super exciting. I think you know there's still a lot of you know volatility and question as to outside of Bitcoin and ethereum what are the great use cases and uh there's a company in our portfolio that you know well bitski that is providing the the wallet and payments infrastructure there. and so that i think that the next two three years we're going to see a um an explosion of of companies that are operating the virtual worlds gaming and all these other areas that we just talked about um, that are going to apply concepts from crypto but aren't sort of crypto native so to speak yeah
0: curious to hear more about your idea uh what would a community enabled uh marketplace look like or what are some examples of of, of of what that that is or could be
1: yeah so I mean the first the first marketplaces out there were essentially operated like online stores that were bulletin boards right so uh eBay is a great example of that right and uh Craigslist is a great example of that. even more bulletin board like than uh eBay even in this current iteration of marketplaces, we see companies like Uber and Lyft and Thumbtack and Etsy and, and Poshmark Uh, Poshmark was, um, and and Uber were both uh, prior portfolio companies um, in the, in the prior Kindred fund. And what they did is great. They collected all of that supply and demand into one cohesive, functional uh, marketplace app or website. Now, would be interesting in the next iteration is to see where the participants whether they're drivers or whether they're uh, sellers or whether they're creators to be able to participate more in the value and that's just a natural evolution of the uh, of people being a little bit more well informed about uh, how these systems work and like like with any capitalist system we we strive to remove the cost and the middleman and the the fee taking and the, the rent seeking and so in a talent marketplace like Brain trust. Uh, that would be where the engineers and designers who are being hired to build products or services uh, for their uh, clients are actually participating participating in the value that that marketplace accrues as the middleman. Now, in a um, for instance, in drops, let's say you know sneaker drops and um, you know collectibles and things like that, but we're investors in a company called Otis. And Otis has created a fractional investment. Uh, uh, oriented stock exchange for uh, these products. And that's like, you know, a, a art piece by Yayoi Kusama or um, by um, uh, Kahinde Wiley, right. Which uh, uh, was the first uh, Otis drop um, when they launched. Now in these cases, investors in this marketplace are able to buy fractional ownership. So they've opened up democratic access in the marketplace of, Arts and arts and collectibles. Now, in the case of creators uh, who are new on the uh, new in the market and creating uh, limited edition products or want to launch their products, how would they be able to participate participate in the value? And I think that to make it truly community owned, uh, so that both the people buying drops from new artists or new creators and the creators themselves being able to participate in that value, a token system makes a ton of sense. That, that token system can not only accrue value through um, the, uh, the transactional value that's happening through the system of buying and selling, but it also is collecting uh, fees on behalf of the creator. And so if you're able to tokenize that and represent that value in the form of a token, then you can actually distribute uh, those tokens uh, to both the buyer and the seller in these marketplaces based upon their activity. And that... That is a really interesting concept, which, you know, classically ownership and equity of a marketplace is reserved for accredited investors and for financial institutions. And it's been divorced uh from the buyer and seller in these marketplaces historically. So that's a that's a concept that comes from uh crypto and comes from the community co-op model uh that we've seen in uh, uh American history. But Never have we been able to pull that together and bring that to play in marketplaces until now. And so I would love to see that for drops, which, you know, StockX, imagine in StockX, if you were able to, uh, as a creator, see some residual value from your products being sold on a secondary market. And, um, and you, know, you see those prices rise. It's a classic example of the artists, um, uh, the greatest artists don't see any value in their lifetime. Uh, from all these like Sotheby's auction sales and things like that. Right. And so how do we bring that forward so that all the secondary trading volume uh, benefits the actual creator? And um, so I would love to see that in the, in the area of drops and pre-sales and things like that. And, and it's an area that came from uh, inspiration from Kickstarter and the stock X's of the world. And uh, I think it's time now for that to happen for this new generation of creators. Totally,
0: that would uh, that would be awesome. I'm looking forward to it. The um, you mentioned fitness and fitness and wellness. You know, I, I made an investment a few years ago in the fitness space, sort of marketplace for fitness instructors. Gr- great team, but um, I, I was a little scarred on that space. Uh, so it, that company didn't do well. It just seems like a really hard space to really get market, you know marketplace liquidity, or um, and people just seem sort of fickle ar- ar- around fitness. You know, we obviously seen Peloton. Um, you know, Future Fit seems to be doing really well. Um, h- how do you think about the fitness space or in terms of where are the opportunities?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I look at fitness, you know, as a, as a subset of, uh, of being. And um, the interesting thing about timing that we talked about is that, you know, before it was, it was, you know, frankly, quite hard to get uh, fitness instructors and uh, their clients together on a, on a online platform because most of the people wanted to go to either these large member club, uh, gyms, or they wanted to go to boutique fitness studios. They wanted the in-person social experience and that was much more rich and high quality, uh, for them. But what, what's happened in 2020 with, uh, the pandemic, it's really forced everyone to find ways to, to get that same fitness experience and that same, uh, well-being, uh, at home. So, Look, fundamentally, I believe that these large member gym clubs are going to go the way of blockbuster video. I think it'll take uh, 10 years plus uh, for uh, these large clubs to uh, die down to a small, only a small percentage of how people um, stay fit. I think that a lot of the uh, movement that Peloton has created is really in a lot of people to the idea that they can have a social fitness experience with other people and an instructor, and they can do it from the comfort of their own home. Now, what, what else has happened is that um, mobile technology, video streaming has all gotten better, and also connected fitness equipment has gotten better. We're investors in a company called Tonal that is doing strength training through a digital machine that provides resistance as well as uh, video content through a screen. And has a subscription model, and and people are just like Peloton are are finding that this is a not only a replacement for the gym, but um, also an improved experience on on many levels. So Peloton and Tonal, these companies have seen 400 percent growth year over year, not only because they were on track to do that, but really accelerated much more by the at home um, existence that we're all faced with in 2020. So once we develop these behaviors these become habits and these become habits because they're actually good and it's beneficial and it feels good to, to do this at home. Uh, We might stick with it. And I think that this has just been a catalyst. This time has been a catalyst for a lot of the connected fitness companies. Uh, Mirror got bought by uh, Lululemon recently. And that was another example of that. But I think that your old company that you invested in, you know, we've seen uh, a ton of companies enter into that space and all with a different approach. And I think that timing wise, this is the right time. I think all of the supporting technologies and a lot of the the, the behaviors, the user behaviors that we want to see are, are coming to a head right now to make that all very possible.
0: Going back to, to Frontier stuff for a second, going crypto, what do you think is the biggest bottlenecks right now or sort of the biggest questions that have to be answered in the next next few years? It seems that we're sort of in a, in a lull right now.
1: I think what we're looking at right now is that, you know, so we're we're investors in Coinbase and what we've seen is that the first level of building blocks have been put in place which is um uh, their smart contract platforms there are uh, uh decentralized systems uh across many different uh use cases including you know, TLDs, top level domains, uh file sharing, um storage, uh, so a lot of the primary use cases that make a lot of sense for uh, uh, crypto have been put in place. And what we've seen basically is that uh, some work and some don't. Uh, in the case of Namebase, there's been a huge ru- goldmine style rush uh, for, uh, to, to capture top level domains. And that's in response to the very centralized ICANN and uh, current TLD system out there. The use cases of crypto so far really have been about investment speculation and to a certain level, a store of value. I think the next generation will be about uh, crypto technology and design, again, used for non-crypto use cases. So existing, pre-existing markets where there is a lot of value, a lot of buyers and sellers, dynamics which um, pre-exist but are fragmented. Uh, in nature. And so how can crypto elegantly capture value and then offer a way to not only be an owner in the system, as well as a participant. And that includes uh, all the things that we've talked about before, which is, you know, uh, cultural economies. We can talk about, uh, top level domains, talent marketplaces, lending. Uh, these are all ripe areas, uh, primed for, um, Innovation by crypto. So I think looking outward from crypto and not looking inward is a good thing right now. I think there's a uh, there's a lot of direct application that will allow certain systems to exist on a on a, a protocol level uh, rather than in a centralized sort of corporate like profiteering model. Uh, so I think I think that the younger generation, the new generation out there, is really sensitive to this. And so I think the timing is right for the next decade or so to really explore that. But in the big picture of things, crypto is not that old. Uh, and, and so we're still in a learning process. But I think the fundamental technology behind it and the ethos behind it can be applied in other areas. Totally.
0: You've also done a number of things in, in fintech. W- Why don't you talk about your, your thesis there or, or where you're most excited or, or where you see the most opportunity? Sure. First off, fintech
1: is... Truly important and amazing. It just—it's a set of features that I think will be part of every company. FinTech is reminds me of how we would talk about sort of, you know, cloud hosted applications. Eventually, everything will be cloud hosted, and it'll be an aspect of every every system. And I, I feel that uh, FinTech more and more what we've seen in a lot of our portfolio companies and in new companies we meet that FinTech is. Uh, a technology area that, um, is going to affect every company, whether it's B2B, B2C in almost every aspect. So that being said, it's also an area with the most jargon I've ever seen in any in industry. Maybe, maybe, um, electrical engineering, hardware companies have more, uh, acronyms and jargon, but what's really exciting about FinTech today is that you've got the, the benefit towards, uh, the, the individual consumer and family. There's so much to do in that space. We've invested uh, in, in previous companies in the space. Connie was an investor in a company called Earnest, working with student uh, loans and debt. We invested in a Bloom Credit, uh, which does um, CRA-style credit analysis. And then today, we've invested in this fund. We've invested in Point, which is offering a new consumer um, uh, debit card, which has the, the benefits of all the loyalty and rewards of a, of a, a high end credit card and providing it to your debit account. And it's all mobile based and it's exciting. It's you're getting a visceral daily frequent benefit from your very normal spending, right? Nothing fancy, not for high net worth individuals, uh, like many of the other, other uh, rewards credit cards. And so, Democratizing the financial system is a really exciting part of fintech. The other part of fintech that we think is is really exciting is the idea of removing a lot of the fragmentation and lack of access for businesses. So we think a lot about how businesses can uh, not only borrow money, but how they can uh, make payments and move capital uh, on behalf of their their own business interests. So that, that's been an exciting area, and then a final area which in fintech that I think is is relevant is um, where crypto and fintech meet. Again, this is you know DeFi has been a term within crypto that has been somewhat of an oasis where there's been a lot of usage, volume, and float happening. But I think that uh, what we're learning there is how to make things not only much more fluid in terms of user experience and seamless but we're also learning about how to remove a lot of the 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 fee taking and uh the the slowness of uh financial services today so the defi space is a great area where crypto can be applied to what is less of a crypto native experience but much more congruent with the existing financial system so i i i really like the i the the, the space where crypto and fintech meet as well totally
0: and how about the rise of uh, no code? Where does that sort of affect your your investments, or how do you sort of think about that as a category or or sort of you know enabling technology?
1: Yeah, like we mentioned, the you know this golden age that keeps happening, right? Increasingly so, has been made possible by all these uh, tools and services, right? The the entire stack is getting simplified. We started with uh, application servers and hosting, and moved up into all these third-party APIs and microservices and no-code, low-code tools like uh, Webflow for app development, uh, Airtable for uh, productivity, Metabase for uh, business intelligence uh, and data analytics, and uh, uh, Northlink for DevOps. Northlink is a company that um, we were invested in, uh, which provides a single solution and cloud hosted for DevOps. You know, all of these things open up more opportunity To build quickly and find early product success or failure faster. But what's secondarily important uh, behind that story is that it's just creating more opportunity for more entrepreneurs, more builders, more creators to ship product. That's a wonderful thing. And if you look at the technology industry as a Darwinian industry, uh, having more competitors Competing for capital, uh, competing for mindshare with users to uh, create uh, new products and solutions in the market is good for humanity. It's good for society. It's good for the economy. And um, so if this proliferates, um, as on course, I mean, we're seeing um, job creation. We're seeing um, a lot of the problems out there in the world can be helped or can be uh, um, can be helpful in solving a lot of those problems. Now, technology alone is not the panacea for uh, all of these problems, um, but it it is a, it is often a necessary tool. And I think that the no code, low code movement. I mean, it's it's part of a larger movement. It's it's really sort of if you were to really whittle it down to a very basic uh, visual construct, it is a dashboarded design movement. It's how do you take that which is complex and requires a, a fair amount of training and experience, how do you simplify that behind a dashboard um, and allow people to visually design software? And that's what no-code, low-code is. It's it's visual IDE instead of writing raw code. And that's an amazing thing. What does it do? It creates opportunity in in diversity of who can write applications now, who can create Websites, apps, products. You don't have to have gone to a four-year college. You don't even have to have gone to a a coding academy. If you have natural language ability and you can articulate what you want to build, you can build a prototype app today. And that's really exciting. You can use Figma Webflow. Uh, You can get hosted on uh, AWS. Uh, You can use all of these tools to... Get a product up and running and shipped. It might not be complex, and the the ongoing product that you're gonna you're gonna have millions of users to to scale on. But uh, you'll you're you're able to get your foot in the door, and I think that's opening you know democratizing access to creating products is one of the best things that the the in the software industry can do, and I think that's what's really exciting. William Gibson had a had a quote. Um, from one of his books, he says, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. This is a prime example of what we're seeing in software. You know, right now, we lack the ability to open up access to more creators unless uh, they have the network or the entitled access or uh, the education already to um, enter into a, a well-known startup or big tech company or computer science department uh, at a four-year college. Coding academies help, but really, you know, if you can use just logic and visual tools to create uh, software products, that opens us up to 10x, 100x more people of any income level, of any educational background, anywhere on the planet. That alone has, makes more of a difference than remote work or distributed work, uh, which I think is great. But the idea of using a visual um, a design environment to create um, software uh, opens up so much opportunity. So imagine you can create uh, your small business today and you can create um, a online store within two weeks using off the shelf, low code products versus spending a hundred thousand dollars on a designer development shop and waiting six months. That's an amazing uh, opening of opportunity. Um, you know, th- what we're essentially talking about with this type of technology is so game-changing. It's not, you know, there's a lot of excitement over GPT three and open AI today. And a lot of the demos have been really like captivating, but underlying that is an amazing opportunity to, to open up the economy and entrepreneurship. Imagine uh hosp- small hospitals, being able to create HIPAA compliant messaging apps uh, for doctors and patients. Imagine teachers being able to create, um, curriculum applications for the iPad for kids that can't come to class anymore. These are all things that are gatekept and prevented because of the cost of you know, highly paid engineers who want to work at big tech companies or cool venture-backed startups and don't want to solve a lot of these smaller widespread problems that may not have the same economic benefit to them. And so I think that arming and decentralizing the power of creating software is, is super exciting. Totally.
0: Uh, I'll ask Richard's quick, quick hot take on, do you think that, you know, remote is the new default and that, um, that is going to be more popular than companies, you know, uh, being co-located in the the same office, uh, you know, a year from now, Or, or, or how do you sort of think about that?
1: Yeah, I think within technology oriented companies, uh, remote work is, is quite easy to pull off, Right. You know, especially if a company is new and they start off remote and distributed, it's quite easy. A lot of our companies in our, in our portfolio were remote and distributed pre-COVID. I think what we're seeing, though, from the big companies is really fascinating. You know, everyone from Twitter, Google, and their ilk that are very office-based, uh, teamwork-driven uh, within the office are already telling their employees that we're going to move to remote. So I think, there's, I think this is a permanent shift. And the reason why I think it's permanent and not temporary is because the the actual net economics of it are going to be better. I think it's going to be better because you can hire talented candidates wherever they might be. You don't have to relocate them or force them to relocate to take this amazing, incredible job with your big company. Uh, the real estate, commercial real estate costs are uh, going to minimize as a percentage of the total budget in the p and I think that Uh, The idea of offshoring and outsourcing, that distinction will get blurred and kind of go away. I think call centers are already cloud-based and uh, remote. I think that uh, design and development for a lot of companies has been a single minority double-digit percentage of their total work. I think it'll slowly creep up and become perhaps a majority, especially for companies that aren't technology companies per se in Silicon Valley. So I think that this will be permanent. I think because the economics of it will start to make more sense, as well as the talent pool access. I think for those two reasons, that what is being catalyzed and accelerated during COVID is going to stick. And for good reason. You know, automation, moving everything off premise into the cloud, a distributed workforce is all a movement that was already happening. And it's just accelerated now many times over because of this year. And that's going to have a reverberation on things like education. Uh, We're already seeing it. We're seeing homeschooling already as a a big push, but we're seeing remote school pods where it's established schools offering remote schooling with classroom pods, which just emerged as emergent behavior in the last four weeks because all the, all the lockdowns continued um, from a lot of the government and state governments. So you'll see more last mile fulfillment and logistics focus because people will be working from home, being educated from home. And then what that requires to do all of this is digitize the whole supply chain. It's to digitize all of these, uh, all these functions now that are going to be operating from at home. So I think for a lot of people, it's going to be quite hard to, to work remote. I think it's going to be quite hard to have childcare remotely at home. It's going to be very difficult. This is not going to be easy. And it's not fair to everyone um, from a, a more or perspective. But what's going to be exciting is that it's a new world where if companies are allowing people to work from home, that takes off the anchor that you have to big cities and high rents and, and property values. And it really unlocks a lot of other things in society. So um, I think it sticks. And I think that, it's going to have a sea change to everything that we do
0: in our daily lifestyles. So so people move out, more people move out of the cities.
1: I think more people will move to suburbs. I think a smaller percentage will move out of even suburbs and go, you know, in the in the great outdoors or move to another city altogether. Right. The organizing principle for our lives, for most, most people on this planet has been around where do they make their income and where can, you know, then secondarily, uh, where's the place that they want to live, right? So it's it's really driven by um, being able to put food on the table for families, and that's been the human existence, uh, you know, in the post-industrial era. And so if we are now truly able to virtualize as a society, that really unlocks, hey, maybe I want to go live in my favorite city. Maybe I want to go live in my favorite state. Maybe I don't have to um, uh, compromise on where my kids are schooled. Uh, Maybe, um, you know, I can be healthy and I can um, be close to family. So a lot of these things are opening up. The unfortunate part of this is that there's a a sliding scale of opportunity um, and the ability to um, benefit from it based upon income. Um, And so I think a great challenge will be for how tech companies and, and startups and entrepreneurs can find solutions which democratize access to all these new benefits that will happen as our society changes. And I hope that this is you know, COVID-19 in the year 2020, and that there will not be a COVID-20 or COVID-21, but that this will be um, uh, truly an isolated incident and we'll learn from it. But I do think that the lasting effects of this will um, be strong and, and
0: long lasting. That's a, that's a perfect place to to wrap. My guest today has been Steve Jang. If you're an entrepreneur, uh, you'd be lucky to have him uh, and Kanye on, on your cap table. We've done a, a number of uh, projects with uh, deals with them and look forward to doing more. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at village